Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the higher gifts. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray. Uh, Lord, as we continue on our conversation here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold your glory in new ways, that you would open our ears that we would hear your voice, and that you would open our hearts that we might believe because we know that in believing, Lord, you will take all of the truth of who you are, what you've done, and what you've called us to do uh, and evidence that through the work of our hands in this city. And we Love Vancouver, and we pray that you would help us to serve this city well as a congregation, even as we talk about in this text today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, over the last number of weeks, we have been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we've been talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church and how the gospel transforms the way that we engage with one another as a community. We've been looking at this over the course of a number of weeks. We're going to look at it again today, talking particularly about the body of Christ, talking about how we engage with one another as the body of Christ. Just by way of outline, we're going to talk about individualism and the body of Christ. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. And then third, we're going to talk about desire in the body of Christ. We're going to spend most of our time on the first point and then get into the second and third, just because I know some of you get very nervous when you know there's three points and I go long on the first one. <laughs> individualism, spiritual gifts, and desire as it relates to the body of Christ, the church. Look at the text again with me, just verse 27. It says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If you were a follower of Jesus, this is true of you. Paul wants the church that he's writing to in Corinth to understand who they already are as followers of Jesus. You don't grow up and eventually become part of the body of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And when he used this image of the body of Christ, it wasn't just the Corinthians that he shared it with. After he wrote this letter, years later, he writes to the church in Ephesus, telling them that God has called them to himself and he has given them an eternal inheritance through Jesus. And then he says in verse 22 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's talking about Jesus. It's good for the Ephesians to understand that they are the body of Christ. And it's not just a good metaphor for the church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus. He actually talks about the reality of the body of Christ to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Okay. It's good for Corinth and it's good for Ephesus and it's good for Rome. It's also good for the church in Colossae. Jesus is being proclaimed as is this high and lofty vision of Jesus. Paul's writing to them about it in, in Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, he also says, talking about Jesus in verse 18, that he is the head 
of the body, the church. So we have Corinthians and Ephesians and Romans and Colossians. And so when I reuse illustrations, I just want you to be more gracious with me. Paul cycles the same illustration through four different churches in four different places. They weren't texting their friends being like, heard this, heard it when I was in Ephesus a while ago. No, no, he's, he's saying this because it's actually very, very helpful for us to understand. You've got to imagine, this is the first generation of Christians. They're asking questions like, okay, now I follow Jesus. What does it mean to be part of the church? And his answer is, we have to understand that you are individually members of the one body of Christ. And so he's explaining to them the significance of what that means for them as a community and as individual members of that community that they recognize they are the body of Christ. It's not just true in Corinth or Ephesus or Rome or Colossae. It's true in Vancouver. And it's true today for you, Christ City. See, our self-understanding as a community is not found in each of us independently asking the question of who am I? It's an important question to ask in life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you actually might be here because you're asking the question of who am I? How do I make sense of this life? It's an important question for each of us to ask, but it's not the only question for each of us to ask. And in fact, our identity as a community is not actually formed by all of us individually saying, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? It's actually by asking whose we are. To whom do we belong? The answer that we'll come to if we look at the scriptures is that we see we are Christ's. We are his body, the church. And what does that mean? That becomes a corporate identity, but it becomes part of our individual identity. How do we handle the tension of that? And what does it mean to be the church? Members of the body of Christ are the physical representation of Christ in this world. The church is the living community through which Christ manifests his life to the world around us. Kind of an important thing to think through. Nothing I'm saying in today's sermon has not already been said. You've heard this over the last number of weeks, and if you're like me, you've already forgotten it. Some of you have been hearing this for decades, and yet you're still learning what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Some of you are brand new at this. And this is the first time you're hearing the church talked about as the body of Christ and the importance of you as an individual member of it. Members of the body of Christ are the physical representation of Christ in the world. Now, hear me because I'm, I'm working towards something here. The ministry of Jesus through his physical body on earth in his incarnation. Christ was born, he grew, he lived, he died. When he lived... In his ministry that we read about in the Gospels, that ministry is continued today through the ministry of his body, the church. So in the same way as Jesus was sent into the world to serve, in the same way as he received the Spirit without measure, it says in John's Gospel, in the same way as his mission was clear, the mission he received from his Father, in that same manner, the body of Christ is now sent into the world to serve. The body of Christ is now empowered by that same Holy Spirit. Even as we get to continue on, the same mission Jesus received from his Father. Let me show you. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to see this. At the end of John's Gospel, when Jesus is risen, he's having a little post-resurrection hangout party with some of his disciples. 
And in that conversation, he commissions them. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And you who are followers of Jesus have received the Holy Spirit. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit and sent to continue the ministry of Jesus in the world today. This is all of our task, all together. You can't do it alone. My fear is that when we talk about, oh, we're the body of Christ, we're the church, we're the body of Christ, you just sort of abstract that from what you do. But if you connect it back to Jesus, it's not an abstracted idea. You begin to carry on and continue the ministry and mission of Jesus today. This is all of our task together. None of us can try and do this alone. And for the body metaphor, listen to Klein Snodgrass. He said the main point is that Jesus' position as head stresses that he is Lord. The image of the body stresses his unity with believers and their unity with each other. We've got to keep that squared in our minds to know who he is and who we are. Now look back at the text, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, like I said last week, we are individual members of one body. We are unique, but we are united. And here comes the tension for us today. The first century Christians were asking what it meant to be the church in their context. That's why we have this letter. In fact, that's why we have all of these letters. They were trying to figure out how to be followers of Jesus in their context. The first century church had questions about how to be the body of Christ and how to live this out. The 21st century church has questions about how to be the body of Christ and how to live this out. They had their challenges. We have our challenges. Some of them are the same and some of them are different. One of the challenges we have is that we are culturally formed by the idea of individualism. Individualism in our culture says you as an individual need to ascribe your own meaning to your own life and it needs to come from within, not from without. Individualism in our culture says you can't live by anyone else's expectations. You can't conform to anyone else's standards or be under anyone else's authority because you have to be free and autonomous as an individual. Now, I've got way more to say on the topic of individualism than I have time to say it. So what we did is I published an essay on our website a couple days ago that you can take 10 or 15 minutes and read if you want that covers some of the historical development of why we think the way we think in the world that we live in. One of the problems is when I say individualism can be a, a controlling idea of how we engage with the rest of the world, some of, you, some of you don't know what individualism is by definition. You know it by experience. And it's so deeply ingrained in every single one of us in this room right now that we assume it's fine. We don't question it. It's become unquestioned cultural orthodoxy. It's just the way things are. I have to be me. You be you, I'll be me, but not under anyone else's authority, only as defined by me. And, and this is the culture and the formative ideas that have shaped us as individuals who now come together as the body of Christ. My point is, it's culturally assumed, and because it's culturally assumed, when we read verse 27, we might miss the emphasis. Look back at the text. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. My concern is that you see individually members of it and you think of that categorically as individualism, not as an individual member. Listen, if an individual member gets severed from the body, this is what John said to the church in Kitsilano last Sunday, so I'm going to say it like he said it because it's gross. If you sever a limb and it sits off by itself, it just starts to rot and decay. That's disgusting. That's the metaphor. Individually members of it doesn't mean you're a hand that walks off by itself. You have to be grafted into the one body in order to be an individual member of it. Individualism says you can go off and be a hand by yourself and you don't need the rest of the body. That's not what this text is saying. The emphasis is on the body of Christ. Individuality is good. Individualism as an operative worldview doesn't align with scripture and it's actually not good. Individualism in our secular culture makes you the head of your life, not Christ. And individualism, it's easy for us to sit here in a church gathering on a Sunday morning and criticize the way that the outside world relates to each other as individualists. The fact is all of us are. We've all been formed that way, so we have to think critically about the way we engage with Scripture to be reformed in the image of God. It's been one of the most prominent culturally formative isms of the last 50 or 60 years. And if we aren't intentional and we aren't looking at the assumptions that we bring to the scriptures about what it means to be human, this will creep into our identity. This will creep into our understanding of what it means to be the church. And, and here's what happens when we do that, okay? When individualism operates as a, a part of our worldview and then we bring our individualism and we place it on top of the scriptures defining of who we are, what happens is uh, individualism in the church decapitates Jesus, Individualism doesn't do away with Jesus. It functionally does away with the rest of the body. So individualism wants to put the body of Christ in the guillotine and lop off Christ's head and then walk away content with a me and Jesus, ver me and Jesus kind of version of Christianity. Now, that's gross, but it's also helpful. If you think about you just trying to walk around with Jesus' head under your arm like a football. If you walk away from the rest of the body, you go, I want Jesus. I don't want the rest of the mess. That's an individualistic idea because it's centered on you. When individualism is the controlling idea behind the way you engage the world and the church, you can then be tempted toward a version of Christianity that is very consumeristic. So let me compare and contrast a couple of things. Consumeristic individualism on one hand and what I'm going to call contributing communityism, on the other hand. I know that's not a word. That's okay. Individualistic consumerism and contributing communityism. Individual says me first. The communityism says community first. There's a me first mentality versus an others first mentality. The individual says, What can I get? The community says, what can I give? The individualistic idea says, what can I have? And the communityism idea says, what can I bring? The consumeristic individualist says, optional participation. The communityism says, necessary participation. The consumeristic view of things is that others are probably dispensable, probably don't need them. So I'll just pick and choose what I want. 
The communityism says no one is dispensable. Everyone is necessary. One is self-focused. One is others-focused. One is individual member-focused. And one is communal body-focused. Now, here's the problem with my comparison between these two ideas. If you tend to be more on the individualistic side of the ledger, you just heard me tell you that you ought to be more community-focused. And if you tend to be more on the communityism side of the ledger, you just heard me tell you that you know, you've done better and you've tried harder and you've unlocked a shiny gold star for your religious achievement collection and good for you. The problem is neither of those outcomes are particularly Christ-centered. This is the issue. If that's all I said about it, that the consumeristic individualist gets guilt, which is not something I'm trying to do, and the, you know, the contributing community organizer gets kind of a moralistic pat on the back for being really nice. There's a chance that neither of you are motivated by the, the gospel of Jesus. I know it's a little bit sneaky of me to offer you two options and then tell you they're both wrong. Um, but there is a better way. Rather than me first or others first, why not start with God first? Why not start with God first? See, Jesus didn't care for people apart from his relationship with his Father. His good works flowed from his relationship with his Heavenly Father. He started first with God. Jesus didn't care for people as a community-oriented idea. He cared for people because he was obedient to the will of his Father. Think about it. When Jesus knew he had to go to the cross... He didn't recoil and say, well, <laughs> it's really not in my best interest. On the other hand, we need to remember that Jesus did not either say, well, I just want what's best for the group. That's what I want. That was very much part of it. But it's only part of it when you recognize that he started with his obedience before the Father first. Because in fact, when he knelt down in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, Christianity is not merely self-centered, and Christianity is not merely others-centered. Christianity is Christ-centered, and a Christ-centered view of life is actually best for you as an individual and best for others. We're talking about the problem of individualism in our culture and the way that we bring that to bear in our Christianity. And what I'm trying to say to you is flipping to the other side and just being so community-focused all of the time that you forget Jesus is not the answer. It's a response to the individualism, and it's probably going to make you a nicer person to live next door to. But it's not the answer. The answer is to be centered on Christ. Individualism in the body of Christ. Now second, let's look at spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. How is it that we function as Christ's body in the world? Well, I said that the body of Christ is now sent into the world to serve, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we get to continue Jesus' mission in the world. And the way that we do that is by identifying our place as individual members of one body with Christ as the head. Let me say it again. The way that we do that is by identifying our place as individual members of the one body with Christ as the head. David Pryor, who's a commentator on the book of 1 Corinthians, he said each individual grows as a person and a Christian in direct relation to finding his place as a member of the body.
Let me say that one more time. Each individual grows as a person and a Christian in direct relation to finding his place as a member of the body. And one of the ways that we grow is by identifying our spiritual gifts. And that's why we're belaboring the point as we move through 1 Corinthians 12. Look back at the text with me in verse 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Okay, we looked at a bunch of these a number of weeks ago, and so I'm not going to duplicate that here. So I'm not going to talk about miracles or healing or tongues. We're going to look extensively at prophecy in three weeks in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So I'm going to leave that alone today, which means I want to talk about apostles, teachers, helping, and administration. Apostles, teachers, helping, and administration. If you came to get your debate on about prophecy, come back in three weeks. It's going to be lit. <laughs> I'm not sure. My kids will tell me later if we still say that. <laughs> Apostles. Okay, so full disclosure, I'm a little bit of a teacher. That's one of my roles in the body of Christ. So we're going to go through these individually. That was a joke. That is apparently not my gift. I've been working on it for years. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me. The challenge for us when we talk about apostles is the word apostle seems to be used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament, at least a couple of different ways in the New Testament. Okay. To simplify and to be clear, what I'm going to say is that we can talk about these two different ways it's primarily used as uh, big A apostles, capital A apostles, and small a apostles. So the original 12 disciples, so Jesus called 12 disciples to follow him. We know that Judas betrayed Jesus and then went and hung himself in the beginning of the book of Acts. They wanted to take the 11 who were still alive, add the 12th. Somebody had to take his place. They quoted some scripture. They said, we need another guy in here. So they brought in Matthias and he becomes the 12th uh, of, the, of the disciples that Jesus called. They had all seen the resurrection. They were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. So I want to talk about the original 12 plus, I believe, Paul the Apostle. So the 12 plus Paul, capital A Apostles. I'm going to call them Apostles of Christ. The rest of the references that we see in the New Testament to Apostles, I'm going to call small a Apostles. I also want to call them Apostles of the Church. And I think it's a helpful designation to say that we're Apostles of Christ and there are Apostles of the Church. The word apostle just means one who is sent out. Okay? There are no more, because this is the question you're going to debate in your community groups this week, so I already know. I already know. It's good. It's a good question. There are no, no more capital A apostles. They're dead. 12 plus Paul, they're all dead. The small A apostles are the ones that we see mentioned in places like Acts chapter 14, where it calls Barnabas an apostle. Galatians chapter 1, where it talks about James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, maybe even later in 1 Corinthians 15, depending on how you read it. Um, if you want to look for some more, Silas and Timothy are both called apostles, uh, but I think only in the small a sense of that word. I think they're apostles of the church. They're sent out by the church. You have those who were sent out by Christ and those who are continuing to be sent out by the church. No more big A apostles, but here in 1 Corinthians, we see the continuation of the small a apostolic gift, apostles, in the small a sense of it. Apostles are leaders gifted by the Holy Spirit who are sent to preach the gospel and plant churches in new areas. 
think a lot of it is missionary work. It's an apostolic gift. Second, teachers. I'm not going to say a ton about this. Teachers are those who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to communicate the truth of God as revealed in Scripture. Teachers are concerned with instilling right doctrine so that the body of Christ can flourish in truth and continue Jesus' mission in the world. A couple, well, a few weeks ago, I, I talked about the way that teachers sometimes argue, or maybe it was last Sunday, teachers kind of can argue with other people in the body because they're all about right doctrine and other people maybe are, are more given to mercy. And so they're all about love and, and caring for the poor or caring for the downtrodden or caring for the hurt or the broken or whatever. And you have teachers at times that can be criticized as being too doctrinal. And the teachers would criticize the mercy people as being you know, not doctrinal enough. And the mercy people would criticize the teachers as being not loving enough. And you have this kind of constant thing. What you have to realize is you need both. You need both. And so teachers actually keep us on the rails. Teachers help us to understand the right doctrine and to uh, be formed by the truth of Scripture. Third one that I'm going to look at is helping. This seems to highlight those who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve in a variety of ways that might not always get noticed. They might not always get noticed. Some would say this is especially related to caring for the poor, uh, for those who are suffering, or those who are carrying out the tasks related to making a church community function as a church community. It's a gift of the Spirit. Helping. The fourth one that we're looking at is administration. This conveys the idea of being at the helm of a ship, steering a ship. So you can imagine the person who's plotting the course of where the ship is going to go and is steering that ship to its appointed end. This is the gift of administration. It is a leadership gift. Those who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, direct, and govern the church. Um, we see the same idea listed if you want to look at Romans chapter 12 as you're looking through it this week. Look at Romans chapter 12, you see the same idea conveyed there. Now, in trying to be practical on this, some would argue that helping and administrating are evident in the work of deacons and elders in the church. It is not exclusively limited to that, but that would be maybe people that we could look at as examples of how they're serving in these two different spiritual gifts, helping and leading. And I want you to notice that these... These, these gifts are listed alongside the rest of the spiritual gifts. Like we're not looking at miracles and healing in tongues because we're going to look at that. Some of it we've already looked at, some of it we're going to look at going forward. Prophecy, healing tongues, and then helping is right in the middle of the list. Do you notice that? It's because helping is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural gift from the Holy Spirit. It is not lesser than. It is also empowered by the Spirit for the sake of the body. And I think it's really important that Paul includes them here in that manner. Helping and leadership not just the sort of fantastic, we're just all sitting back waiting for that person with miracles. I'm still waiting for you, by the way, if you haven't got a hold of me yet, if you've got the spiritual gift of miracles and you've seen some of that kind of thing happen. I said that a few weeks ago. No one's emailed me. In your great humility, you don't want to be the person who says, oh, well, I have miracles. I don't know what it looks like, but we want to see this happen. But we, we, we need to notice that miracles are right next to helps, helping. Here's the point I want to make. Apostles don't preach the gospel and plant new churches as an expression of their individual gift. And they don't preach the gospel and plant new churches for the sake of community. They do this because they've been gifted by the Holy Spirit and they've been sent out in obedience to Jesus' commissioning. It's not about them and it's not only about the community, it's actually centered on Christ. And this is how we have to understand all the gifts. 
Teachers don't communicate the truth of God as revealed in scripture and instill right doctrine in the church as an expression of their individual gift. And they don't teach only for the sake of the community, though the community benefits by their teaching. They do this because they've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to help us all to keep our focus on God. It's not about them and it's not about the community. It's centered on Christ. It's the gift of teaching for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. Helping adds value to the body of Christ, not because it's about the individual helper, but as a gift of the Spirit that exemplifies the way Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Administration or leadership adds value to the body of Christ, not because it's about the individual leader, but as the gift of the Spirit that leads us all to follow Jesus and to participate in his mission in a Christ-centered way. It's not about those who are gifted to help and those who are gifted to lead. It's about the community that they serve and lead being centered on Christ. Again, you can default to an individualistic view or you can default to a communal view. And if you default to either of them apart from being centered on Christ, you've lost the plot. Helps and leadership keep us focused on Jesus. And when it's all centered on Christ, all of this work that we have in the Spirit, the individual grows by finding their place in the body. And that's what you'll find as you begin to discover the gifts that God has given you. You all of a sudden feel more connected to the body, not less. And because you now are employing the gifts of the Spirit that God has given you, the whole community begins to flourish because we're now more whole because of your participation in it. You are serving through the gifts of the Spirit as a benefit to all. So if you keep Christ first as the head and the center of the whole thing, you'll get a thriving church. If you put individuals or community at the center, you won't. Look at verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer that we see in the grammar of the way the questions are asked, the answer is no. Just no. But some are gifted as apostles and prophets and teachers. And some do miracles, possess gifts of healing, and speak with other tongues and interpret other tongues. And for each of them, they need to do so as members of the one body, not as individualists. And I think this is important for us, to continue to lean in together and to serve together for the benefit of the flourishing of the church, for the continued mission of Jesus in our world. So first, we talked about individualism. Second, we talked about spiritual gifts. Now third, desire in the body of Christ. Desire in the body of Christ. What are we talking about? We need to understand the way that the gifts of the Spirit draw us as individual members into growth. Some of you have grown flat in your growth curve, and you need the, I don't know, some sort of cattle prod. Okay, I'm trying not to get too hyped up about this today, because I'd really like to cattle prod you, because we need you. But I'm not going to. I'm just going to teach. I'm going to hope the Holy Spirit cattle prods you which is a far more effective cattle prodding. And is cattle prodding something you can talk about in the city of Vancouver? Probably not. I'm from the country where I saw cattle prods. This is how you move cattle. I have to explain. the. I was actually, I said this to our residents this week. They were, talk, we were talking about preaching and they were talking about contextual metaphors. 
And I said, yeah, like where I grew up in the country, like in a village in the country, I have all kinds of agrarian metaphors, but every time I try to use one, I have to explain the entire system of farming. And then I can explain how one thing works. And by the time I do it, it doesn't work and it doesn't make any sense. And I've just eaten up too many minutes of my you know, allotted time, which is what I'm doing right now. That's why you don't default to your childhood metaphors. You have to bring it. So I don't know what in the city it would be, but you know, somebody moving you along in a queue. I have no idea. But we need to get you activated because we need you. And you need to grow because the mission of Jesus is too important. One of the ways that we can do this is to make sure that our desires are rightly aligned with the will of God. So look at verse 31. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, a bunch of you firstborn overachiever type A folks that I know our whole church is full of, you hear this and you're like, praise God, there's higher gifts I can try to work toward. I've been waiting for someone to tell me where the ladder to climb is and I just found it. I'm going to climb the ladder of spiritual gifts because there are some that are better than others. Praise God. And the rest of you are like, man, those type A firstborn, classically problematic ladder climbers. That's not what this text is saying. If you've read through 1 Corinthians 12 with us over the last number of weeks, you're going to quickly realize that ranking the gifts as higher or lower or greater or lesser is kind of the opposite uh, thing, the, the opposite to the point Paul's been making all the way through this. Church in Corinth is fairly dysfunctional, not that different from Christ City, and he's trying to correct them and help them to understand how they can use their individual gifts for the sake of the body in a Christ-centered manner. But when he says first apostles, or second prophets, or third teachers, he's not giving a ranking of importance. It's possible that what he's doing is giving them a chronological sequence of the way they experienced the gifts of the Spirit as the church in Corinth was planted. Like an apostolic church planter showed up, and then someone else came in with a prophetic gift, and then someone else came in with some teaching and sort of tried to stabilize everything. It's possible that that's it. It's not entirely, un, uh, it's not entirely clear, but that's kind of what I think is going on. It's not that first, second, and third are a ranking of importance, and it is not saying that some gifts are better than others. I think his whole point is that we need each individual member of the body to function in their gifts if we're going to be the one healthy body of Christ. So what are the higher gifts? If, if, if it's talking about higher gifts, then what is he talking about? Okay. I think that we need to see what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because this is a, a literary work. I know that sometimes when you take a letter and you break it down over the course of like two years, however long it's going to take us to preach through this, that at times it can become disjointed in your thinking. But it is a letter, and chapter 12 comes before chapter 13, which is followed then by chapter 14. You're welcome. I did well in math as well. And in chapter 12, I think he's setting them up for something here. We're going to see this next week when we're going to start to talk about the priority of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then following that, he's going to give them some understanding on how they can use the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of tongues in the gathered setting in the church. Those are the ways that we're going to be navigating the text as we go forward. But, but he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 1 and 5, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, is he saying that they are of greater worth in this world because they prophesy versus tongues? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the measure of greatness or higher gifts, I think we can define our text today by what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. The way that we're defining that is they are more 
broadly serving the church. They are working toward the building up of the congregation. And so someone speaks in tongues, his point is like, that's fine for them. But one who prophesies is actually building up the entire body because it's intelligible and it's understandable and it's compelling in a way that encourages us as we grow. So that's how he's defining higher. Not a ranking that you can climb to get to the top of the pile, but in a way where the gifts can be used to serve all of them. And I would make an argument that perhaps something like helping is actually of more use. So when he's talking about desiring the higher gifts, he's going to start talking about prophecy, and that's because they had a really skewed view of that. But what about helping? What about those mercy gifts? What about leadership? What about some of those things that we think maybe aren't that supernatural, but I think they actually are quite compelling in their way of helping the entire body to go forward? So I think we can define that higher or greater gifts based on what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. That means the greater or higher gifts are the ones that build up the church the most. But then you go desire the gifts of the Spirit and just ask the why question. Why is this important? Because carrying on the ministry and mission of Jesus in the world as individual members of the body of Christ, it actually requires it of us. I don't want us to look at them like individualistic consumers and we go, here's my gift, this is mine, I got this. I want you to see that your gift belongs to the whole body and that it's a gift of the Holy Spirit for the whole body that comes through you as an individual. Not so that we stand back and go, here's my gift, and I take it, and I take hold of it, and it's my thing, and I carry it around, but do you actually see that it's a common gift of the Holy Spirit for the whole body that is evidenced and worked out through you as an individual? So you bring your gift of the Spirit to bear for the sake of the whole body. So that we actually think in the way that I believe Paul is teaching them, that the one body of Christ, and we are individually members of it, like you can't just go around talking about the gift of your foot. I'm a foot and I have some really great toes and it's such a wonderful gift for me to bring my toes to the whole body. Okay, cool. Also, without a foot is trouble for sure. But why don't you see that as one member of the entire body as opposed to seeing that as a separate thing that you're going to add in for you know, your contribution whenever you feel like it. That's not what it's getting at. The oneness here is a big deal because Christ is the head. These are the gifts of the whole body, not the gifts that you have. They just come to the whole body through you. And that's important for us to square away in our thinking. Now, let me add this. Apart from the gift of apostle, which is a translocal apostolic gift where there's a lot of sending and going out and planting churches and all that kind of thing. Apart from that, the rest of these are all local church gifts. They're all for the local body of Christ. And you go, yeah, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the Colossians and the Romans about the body of Christ. But you got to think, those are all individual churches and individual towns. So you can't abstract the whole idea and go, yeah, yeah. Kind of like when Jesus says, love your neighbor, and you go, yeah, yeah, I want to love the whole world. No, your literal neighbor. Like the person who lives next door to you. Start there. Don't be like, I just love the whole world. But no one, on, no one in your building knows your name. <laughs> right? I love everyone. Great. Can you start with the person who's, you share a wall with? <laughs> Just knock on their door and say, hi, my name is. And that's how you begin that relationship. In that same way, as we, we try and abstract the idea of neighbor love, we, we don't want to try and abstract all of this into sort of the, the one 
global body of Christ. Because the gifts are experienced right here. Let me show you what J.I. Packer said about the church. I think it'll be helpful. He said, essentially, the church is, was, and always will be a single worshiping community. In the world, however, this one church appears in the form of local congregations, each one called to fulfill the role of being a microcosm, a small-scale representative sample of the church as a whole. He, this explains how it is that for Paul, the one church universal is the body of Christ, and so is the local congregation. That means that all the conversation about the body of Christ, it actually gets laser-focused in on this community. So your right desiring of the gifts of the Spirit matter for the rest of us. Here and now. This local expression of the body of Christ, called Christ City Church, needs you to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit for our benefit and for the benefit of the mission of God in our neighborhood. How how do you do that? Four quick one-liners on how you can do this. How you can desire the higher gifts. First, examine your motives. Do you want the gifts activated in your life because you desire prominence, you want to be seen as a real team player in the community, or because you just want to serve Christ's body and his mission? So you just got to examine your motives. Why do you want that? If you're sitting there going like, Lord, please give me the gift of blank because you think that'll be a good look for you, that's the wrong desire. Second, pray. Have you asked God for the gifts? Have you asked him to reveal the gifts that he's given you? In fact, B.J. Oropisa, he said, although the Spirit distributes gifts as the Spirit wills, Paul encourages congregants to eagerly or to earnestly desire the greater gifts. This suggests that fervent prayer, the action behind earnest desire, might result in a divine willingness to grant petitioners their request for new spiritual endowments. So I just want to say, have you prayed about it? Third, try it out. Just start serving. Are you seeking places to serve where God may use spiritual gifts that are in you? So are you taking opportunities to serve in different areas as you try and discover the gifts that God has given you? And then fourth, I'm just going to say this. If you got them, use them. If you got them, use them. Don't say, well, five years ago I was really helpful in this area or God really used me in this ministry or you fill in that blank. And then just sit here now and go, but I'm sure somebody around here is probably stronger at it than me, so I'm just not going to do anything. That's how you earnestly desire the higher gifts. Take what God's given you and use them. Pray. Try them out and use them. I told you, nothing I was going to say today would be new. Would you stand with me as we respond today? (laughs) 